Welcome back. It's time for Customers Who Click, the e-commerce podcast for brands looking for their next growth opportunities. If you're interested in improving your conversion rates, average order values, and customer lifetime value, head over to customerswhoclick.com where you can find all our previous episodes and get in touch if you'd like to learn more. Welcome back. It's time for Customers Who Click. Uh, we've got another intriguing episode lined up for you today featuring Simon Girardin. Simon is here to dive into why processes are the backbone of conversion rate optimization and to give us a walkthrough of the different stages of a CRO program and their corresponding processes. If you've been looking to streamline your CRO efforts and understand the intricate workings of a program, this is the episode for you. Let's welcome Simon on now and delve into the world of processes in CRO. Hi, Simon. Thanks for joining me today. Uh, would you mind just uh, give us a bit of an introduction to yourself, a bit of your background and how you got to where you are today? Hey, Will, thank you so much for having me today on your podcast. So yeah, for sure, a bit on my background. I am currently a CRO manager over at Commission Advocates, but it didn't start with CRO experimentation. So I've been in the sphere of digital marketing since 2017, and I studied a bachelor's and a master's in marketing. I went into those programs thinking that I would build up skills to become a, a paid campaigns manager. Uh, but in reality, I took away a passion and an interest for business models. So how that all translated is I found out that all the industry disruptors, the companies who've been dominating their markets, uh, Uber, Amazon, there's a bunch of other examples, everyone can name them now. All these guys, they stood out because they were better at doing fast pivots with their business. So I found that a really interesting piece. And I just was passionate about understanding how they started their businesses, oftentimes in areas that they don't even conduct business anymore. And so out of that led me to the field of experimentation, which is one of the great methods to actually do quick pivots with a business. I mostly talk about strategic testing, which means that I encourage people to run tests that are data-driven and that they make their business decisions with a customer-focused approach. The goal is you conduct primary research, you gain those insights, and then you test them. So you create this entire loop where you gain a deep understanding of your customers, and then you're able to go into real refined details about how they behave on the site and what are the actual elements on your website that makes them either buy at a higher rate or maybe at a lower rate, and then you identify those things and can prevent them from happening. And all of that brings us to our topic today, Will, which is I'm really passionate about strategic testing, and I really do believe that it's the one way with CRO and experimentation where you can achieve the best results in ROI, but that can only happen when you have a process that is well set up and that all the pieces fit in place and that you have this full puzzle. Yeah, absolutely. Going back to what we said earlier, I mean, that my LinkedIn post today was about basically saying there's three questions you need to ask before you make any change to your website. Firstly, have you done the research and have you, have you identified this as a problem point? Secondly, ask yourself, is this going to improve the customer experience? And thirdly, are we going to test it? Three most important things, right? Is it data-backed? Is it designed to increase the customer, improve the customer experience? Obviously, you think, surely the answer is yes. But actually, sometimes when you really think, when you really think about this change, you go, actually, no, this is something we want to do that I doubt the customers will even see it. And the third thing is testing, because if you don't test it, you don't know the impact. But there's one thing you said, actually, obviously identifying things that increase conversion and identifying things that decrease conversion so that you can stop them. Going back to the strategy piece, there are obviously times when it's actually okay to have a lower conversion rate or a lower AOV. There might be times when you're happy to see certain metrics drop drastically because another one improves or something later down the line improves. I was talking to someone the other day about samples. So she has a health and beauty brand. And I said, well, there might be times when we say, we're happy for your to conversion rate to go up, but your average order value to absolutely plummet because these new purchases are just buying a new sample kit, which is like $10, as opposed to their normal AOV of 70, I think it is. right? But you might be okay doing that, knowing that people who buy a sample kit are... 10 times more likely to then go on and spend more money. Right. And this example is great because in here we've identified, let's say, a lever and a suppressor to growth. But then when we're looking at it holistically, if there's a net positive, as you say, it can be totally worth it to sacrifice one metric in favor of another. But all of this has to be intentional by design. That ties back to what we're discussing, right? That 
if you don't have this process where you build a strategy and structure the test plan with all the details, the metrics that you were targeting, the monitoring metrics that you would just watch on the side, then you can't just look at this experiment and say it's a win because it can actually be a fallacy in this case. So that ties back to having this process in place, which rules out out of the unknowns and is a, a set of structuring and guiding principles with what we're doing in optimization. Yeah, absolutely. So how do you get customers clicking? Okay, I love that question. And I'll first answer generally and then go into an actionable detailed answer. So generally, you just need to build and create a delightful customer and user experience. Now, I, a lot of people would love to hear that there is a secret sauce or a magic bullet, or that there's one test or like one content module on the site that always wins and always performs. And the, the, the reality that I found it so far that never rings to be true. And um, the, the issue with this thought process is that we're kind of trying to replace the strategy work with an easy fix solution. Well, in reality, each website is different and each website has differences in how their audiences are built, they behave and what they're looking for. And so what that means is if you pull from a list of previous winning tests, then that can be a good source of inspiration if you've done your strategy work and research to find here is that I think a lot of these people who are looking for the easy solution are trying to supplement or rather pay. They're trying to switch from a strategy work to just pulling from previous things that worked. And because each audience is different, because each test on a different website also just doesn't apply to the same set of rules, then you're not sure it's going to win. And even if you run a test three years ago in your company and you were to run it again, then most often results can be different because your audience has shifted, the market is different and that can happen in a couple of years. So to tie all that back and to answer actionably, I think there's three components that are key for us to build this delightful experience. And that all ties back to having this process. So the first part is having an intentional and documented process where you have 12 month business goals that you translate it to 90-day KPIs. That's going to help you focus on what you optimize for each quarter. And those KPIs are allowed to switch every quarter. You should just look at your 12-month goals, consider how far you are and how close you are to achieve them, and then pick metrics. Just a couple per quarter, let's say two to three, and then focus on optimizing those. With that, then you can build a research roadmap and understanding what are the key questions that we do not know the answers that we can map a research method to help us answer? And ideally, as you well know, if we can have multiple research methods that help us answer the same question, that is a very rich, uh, rich pool of insights that we're able to get. And then finally, the third part is running scientific tests that allow you to validate those insights you find. Then you foster learnings, you will unlock new opportunities to uh, innovate. You'll also discover new test ideas as you're testing and learning insights from the test themselves. And this is going to create a flywheel in a loop that's continuous and that is really valuable for the company and for the customer, as long as we still always build these strategies, thinking from the customer's point of view and not the business. Yeah. I mean, this obviously sounds like a lot of work and I know it is as well, because this is what I do as well. Mm -hmm. For a small brand... Or, or a smaller business who maybe wants to try a bit themselves or just can't afford a full-service CRO agency, how little can you get away with process-wise? So before I get into answering that question, I want to make one heavy caveat for everyone here in that there are real risks if you're trying to conduct CRO with a single-person team. And I really want to advise against that because there are somewhere in the realm of like 14 to 15 total skills requ required to run a program. To be honest, most individuals have more than one, but a core team would consist of probably on average four to five different people. And just as a clear example, as myself sitting in a strategist position, I have very basic skills into design and development. So there's no way I'm able to build a delightful experience other than just from a thinking perspective, but I am not able to execute it. So you need to have a cross-functional team to be able to do just the work, just to build a single test. If you're alone, it's going to be really difficult. I don't advise. Yeah, well, I mean, it's 
the, the chance of you getting someone who is a strategist, an analyst, a project manager, a designer, and a developer who can just do everything for you is absolutely tiny. Like they don't, mm-hmm. people don't really exist. But in the same way that it's really unlikely you're going to get someone who can do TikTok ads, Meta, Google, email marketing, SEO, affiliates. Right. Not only are they different skills, but there's just so much work involved. Right. Just the, the research element of CRO alone you know, could be, for a little while, can be a full time job. Could be, for sure. And so, on to your question. Oh, I will say it is definitely possible to get started and have no process. It's going to be really challenging. And the process, as I said, is a set of guiding principles to, to structure the work and organize everything. So if you don't have a process, then the, some challenges and issues that can come with it is first, if you haven't built templates and uh, haven't structured how you're going to operate, then at a, at a very tactical level, when you get to do a research deliverable, or when you get to uh, try to obtain an approval for a test, if you don't have those templates, that's going to hurt you. And the templates are part of the process because they help you tell a story and and kind of bring your stakeholder up to speed on hours of work that you've done in just a couple of minutes. So if you don't have just those basic templates, you're going to be struggling to get to the point with your stakeholders, keep their interest, and also have their buy-in. But to broaden that, there's a bunch of elements from the, the, the process that are key. So first, there's guardrails around what do we test and the value of every single experiment. And so by that, I mean, if we do not know our business goals, if we do not know what and how we're trying to grow the business, then it's very likely that you present out test ideas that your stakeholders are just not interested in too. If they do not feel it's impactful, it's very likely it doesn't align to their business goals. And it's just not worth it, to be honest, because most of the time, what people tell as stories is when stakeholders are not invested and not interested, then they mostly don't approve tests and slow down the programs. And slowing down can mean losing the budget for the program in a little while. Yeah. And so just to add to that, I think I see it a lot, possibly more so in CRO than elsewhere, actually, where there's this attitude of someone, and I saw someone who posted about it on LinkedIn, actually, I think it was today or yesterday. And it started with, your opinion on your own website doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Or your opinion about your website is wrong. And there's, from a certain point of view, that's correct, right? Because we know, CROs ourselves, it's very likely that if you said, I want to change this about this website because I don't like it and I think this version is going to be better, there's a high chance that's wrong because there's no research into it. There's no customer feedback, mm-hmm. no real thought process. However, you've still got to accept the fact that some people like certain things about their website they like certain things a certain way and they are just don't they don't want to compromise on that and so if you just have a conflict with them and say well you're wrong we need to test it once you start creating friction and and break rapport with your clients then it's hard to come back from that right and so as part of your process what what you're saying is right you need to have alignment with everyone who's involved in the you're better being everyone pulling the same rope in the same direction than having someone stopping and kind of having second doubts. And so, as we said, those goals, those business goals really help make sure that our stakeholders align with the tasks that we present. It allows whoever is the strategist to know ahead of time that this test is likely to be approved because we're optimizing against a known issue that matters to the company and to the customer as well. So that's like being data-driven comes as part of that. There's a different set of guardrails, which is on about following the branding and guidelines, having a proper QA process that ensures and we catch any bugs and issues before tens of thousands of visitors are exposed to a test. Those reassure people just by the sheer fact of their existence. There's also like other components of the process were critical. So a lot of companies, when they get started with CRO, an early realization is, oh shoot, our data tracking isn't at its best. We're missing on some important metrics and we're not tracking. Or like, there's this very valuable customer action that we've actually never built a goal around. So initiating the CRO process helps you audit your platforms and your data and make sure that you have the, the best solution that you can for right now, which really enriches the value of audience size that we find 
and allows the program to succeed because if we're not able to track a specific goal, then how are you able to validate that a test against this specific metric is ever going to win? Broadening to different other... There's also a huge component that if you structure everything, it organizes the work. And a saying that I really love is, if you're ever rushing, then your process is broken. This is powerful because it tells you how structured your workflow can be, and it allows you to disseminate the work in manageable chunks. And as you said in the early minutes of this discussion, Will, there's a lot of work involved in what we're doing. And so if you're just trying to burst through 10 hours of work, it's going to be real challenging. But the way that the process works if you set it up properly, then you're going to work in smaller chunks that are very manageable. You're never going to have this sense of overwhelm, but also anytime that you get blocked, you're able to be soon enough on the timeline that you can prevent any slowing down that would happen later because you're able to gather the allies or the tools that you need to overcome the roadblock in front of you. Yeah, I think that's really important. And just reminded me of something that's Jeremy told us on the podcast oh start of this year or was it start of last year it was a little while ago now <laughs> but his, his this hit thing about for every test you do there should be three mm. kind of th- not three hypotheses one hypothesis like three test ideas for it so that by the time you get to the third idea you might still have something fairly basic it's not going to be life-changing mm-hmm. for the website but it should be a lot better than your first idea, yes. which is going to be quite basic because your first idea is based off the hypothesis. If your hypothesis is there's not enough trust in our business, then the first idea is let's put reviews on the website, right? The third idea might be let's get some of our customers to record video testimonials and we need to put them in these locations. That can't happen if you're rushing. Right. Because you won't get past that first idea because you rush to get the first idea in and then you move on to that next phase. And I suppose we're going to come to this later, but the post-test stuff as well. Right. Right. If you rush it, you end, you implement, you move on to the next thing. Right. And I'll actually send Jerry once again about it. He says something in his course, which is you can have the right data point and the good hypothesis and just be slightly off in your implementation and not find a winner. But if you were to shoot right again, like a picture of a hockey player uh, shooting his puck at the net, the same position, the same shot, and just like a slight variation somewhere along the line, couldn't mean that this time it's he scores. And so, again, think of experimentation the same way. And it's actually great what you said, that there's two levels in our test plans. There's a hypothesis, which is at a high level, we've identified a user problem from research. We have this problem statement, the hypothesis tries to solve it with a general solution. And as you said, let's say we have an issue with trust on a website. Our users do not trust us. Then our hypothesis could be adding social proof. Then you have all these variations that you listed here, which is one could be reviews, one could be video testimonials. Another one could be for some companies, they could publish a research that they run or some websites that are really cool sometimes in the DDC space. Sometimes they'll have like, we bought the competitor product and trying to break it. And here's how it went. So all of these are different variations to the same hypothesis. And if you don't have that, then you have these kind of limitations in your testing and you're likely to miss out on some really good stuff. Yeah. I mean, it's where you've just got to dig into that customer research a bit and find out what people are really saying. No one says, I don't trust the bez- the website or the business. Mm-hmm. Most of the time it's, I wasn't sure if this was a legit business, yeah. right? So two ways to deal with that are, again, reviews. That's say great business, great customer service. But a second one that, I've, that we've tested and works really well is just making sure there's an email, a phone number, and an address visible on pages. People don't need to contact the business. People want to know that they can contact the business. And sometimes that's enough just to bump your, your numbers up a bit. And it's a really simple test to do. Indeed, yeah. Looking legitimate online right now is not a luxury, it's table stakes. You cannot yeah. have a business that's perceived as fake or as disingenuine or any of those untrustworthy things. So, but Also, sorry, just one more point on that. 
you might just come across a small, right? If I look at a business and I can't see any way to contact them, either it's, I know it's a absolute massive enterprise and they just don't want to support millions and millions of customers, or I'm thinking you're probably such a small business, you can't afford for people to contact you because it's too much, too resource intense. Both of, and that's a reason for me not to buy from you because if I can't get hold of you and I have a problem, it's not going to happen. Just as bad as having no reviews at all and me wondering whether you are a, a legit business. For sure. Perception that people build is done really early and really, it's not even an intentional process for the most part. So if you do not have an upfront store that displays trust signals, then you're just missing out because, and before you said your own opinion on your website doesn't matter. And I think that why that's so important is that as a general marketer, we spend probably hours every week looking at a site. But in comparison, your customer, look at your own data, right? They spend what, maybe one minute, maybe two minutes on the site on average. So they don't see most of the issues that you see. They don't see most of the minor UX tweaks that aren't perfect. And they probably don't see slight color variations as well. So oftentimes what we perceive as real issues in, in, in our site is built, our customers don't see it. And so conversely, what isn't there doesn't take long for them to notice and then move on if they're not interested. Yeah, absolutely. I did have another point on that, but I can't remember what it is. Let's move on. If I remember it, I'll come back to it. Yeah. So what's the next, like, what's the next stage of a program? Where else do these processes fit in? So I like this question, but I'm actually not sure uh, at what, from what perspective I should answer. One of these perspectives is we could talk about the maturity of a program and how it evolves over time from three months to six months, eight months, 12 months. That, that's an interesting angle. But there's another interesting angle as well, which is what's the life cycle of one test through just like all the steps that touch it? So I'd love to hear, Will, which perspective are you most interested in? I, th- I think the latter would be really good to go through because I think a lot of people do miss this bit particularly the post-test piece, which I think is really important. Right. So yeah, let's say a brand wants to run a program, they can run three or four tests a month. That's all they're set for. What is the process to get a test out? Okay. So before we even start about testing, we need to make sure we build this alignment with our stakeholders. That involves executives. We need to have a top-level buy-in. I will say, so far in my experience, I have never seen a program succeed when there's not a top-level buy-in. And conversely, when there's someone on the exec team in the top-level leadership who's pushing and driving for experimentation and testing, that can really, really accelerate the whole thing. So from my personal experience, I really recommend having a top-level leadership who's fully bought into the, the process of experimentation and just wants to give on into it. Why do we have this alignment? We need to understand our, our 12-month goals, transfer them 90-day KPI, and then map a research role, research role map. And so here we need to understand what are the unanswered questions in our business. Also, what are our assumptions? Because we always have a bunch of assumptions. Let's put that down on paper and then map research to help us validate or invalidate. Also, something that can be good is some teams, there's hubris or bias that can come into play. And we definitely don't want that to become a blocker. So one thing you can do is document all of that, but not associate it to a name. So we start thinking about our customers and how they relate to what we think exists or not. And then we validate this, but it's not uh, linked to a person. So that allows no one to feel hurt. And also that prevents anyone from stepping on someone else. That's just a great approach to have a research roadmap that allows to address those points but make sure that no one is personally attacked, which is really important. Once again, with your single team. When that is done, you start testing. And I am a firm believer in the dual track research and testing, which means some consultants and companies and teams choose to postpone testing for weeks or months until they gather initial insights. And I understand where they're coming from, but I think they're just missing out on some value. Whereas you could launch tests from day one if you don't have much research, you just like audited your website and have a couple insights on things you think you can change. Obviously, you're not super research-backed, but running the test is going to do a couple things for you. First, it gets the ball rolling. And just like picture a snowball at the top of a cliff, if you start 
very early, when it gets to the cliff, it's going to be massive and it's going to be impressive. Whereas if you just start rolling a couple inches before the drop, then it's going to be pretty small. So think about it as a snowball. You get the ball rolling and you also start exposing everyone to the process really early. What is the test plan approvals looking like? This year is very simple. We're focusing on a single audit point that we discovered and we're looking at the goal tracking that we're identifying. What's the main goal that we're trying to optimize for? And can discuss QA, which is the important step step of the test plan approval. Do we foresee any technical issue? And do we foresee any elements on our website that need to be specifically QA'd with this experiment? Let's say you affect a, a feature or an interaction. You need to make sure that works on all device types, all windows and everything like that. So this whole process is actually a lot more than, hey, I want to test a testimonial. Yes, let's do it. We need to have all these components in the discussion. So uh, I'm in favor of running research and testing from the from day one. So when you get to the point of having a test, you build this test plan, and I've listed a couple components, right? There's your hypothesis. Some teams really love to put down the problem statement as well, which is something that I pretty, I like a lot. I'm a huge fan of. Then you list out your research insight. And you can see here how you're already building a narrative. We found this issue based on these different sources of research. And the good point is all these different research methods have a different perspective on the customer. Maybe it's a self-reported answer versus we've observed them. That's valuable. And then you have like the solution you propose is an actually in variation. So before we go into that, just take a step back, actually. Mm-hmm. Do, you just, do you want to explain the difference between hypothesis and the problem statement? Yes. So... When you run your research, you're going to say something like, oh, wow, our users uh, consistently miss the main CTA that we've put on the page. Why is that? And through your different research insights, maybe you find out that you actually have a secondary CTA that has a lot less weight to it on your site. So you expect people not to click as much. And everyone clicks there. So now our problem statement is users are not clicking the main conversion action we want them to do. The hypothesis is going to be containing two different components, which is what is the element that we want to change? And so here we might consider removing that secondary CTA so that people are kind of guided onto the main action. Or maybe we need to contextualize better those two different actions and put a, a guiding principles onto who should click where. And so you've, you see that a lot on SaaS websites where they'll say, if you're trying to grow a smaller company, click here. Versus if your enterprise click here. So that's really helpful and guides users. Then you're also going to identify what the metric you're trying to optimize for. And you're going to have a rationale, which is usually going to be tied to something like we're trying to remove anxiety, or in this case, maybe we're trying to remove confusion. So with testimonials, as we discussed before, then we try to increase the perceived trust. So this hypothesis with these three components, the metric you're trying to optimize for, the change that you're trying to make happen, and then the rationale, it's going to, it's, it's a solution to the problems. Does that make sense? Yeah. So then we're moving on to solution. Yeah. And so that's your task plan, right? So you have all these different components and you're trying to get an approval. So one thing I'll say is we, we, we're talking about the process, right? When you come up with your task plans in front of your team, ideally, you should already feel confident that it's going to be approved. And the way that you do that is one, Ideally, you've presented your research insights beforehand and you've gotten their first approval on the fact that they liked an insight you presented it. It's part of that. Hey, we found this and a great taste idea would be that. And if your team already agreed to that, then when you're coming up with a test plan, you've just formalized an idea that everyone agrees on already. So that's really powerful and it helps you move fast and seamlessly. And also for the person who builds a strategy, you don't want to have to build four test plans for each one that gets approved, right? That's a great piece of the process of presenting your research, getting a, a kind of pre-yes. And then when you come to the test plan, it's a final yes. Then you have a whole life cycle of test development. And so it's going to go into possibly a copywriting stage, a design stage. Typically, I always recommend that you do a design approval. So it allows you to identify things that need to be changed. Yeah. The way that we like to operate with, we send a Figma file to our client. And we collaboratively work with them on identifying everything that needs to be solved, including things that match branding guidelines. We also ask, does this test work? Does this, this variation that we've built on Figma, 
work with the hypothesis that we wrote. That is super important because sometimes we can steer away from that. And then thirdly, any just pieces of feedback, sometimes it's going to be a copy change or just like moving elements around. You want to collaboratively work on that so that when you go into development, then everything is smooth sailing from that. You better spend a bit more time in design than move faster and have to go back. I've learned the hard way. Yeah, if you skip approval, oh, sorry, not skip approval, but if you don't have that approval place in, mm-hmm. that's what I mean by skipping it. Obviously, yeah, yeah. not just saying, ah, let's not ask the client about this one. No, I mean, if you don't have that approval place in, in place, it is I, I guarantee that on something that you've put a lot, a particularly large amount of work into, that's the one where the the client will come back and say, no, we don't like the design. Yeah. No, it's never the other things where you don't really have a problem with it and they just slips through, whatever. It's the ones where there's quite a bit of design and development that has to go into it. That's the one that always gets pulled back and they say, no, we don't like the design of this. And so what you're talking about here is the real proof and example of why all these small pieces of the process matter to the bigger picture. And if you think about it, the sum of all the components in the process is much smaller than the actual process as a whole. If you think about the whole thing, the value of having everything put in place is much greater than you can ever see just by looking at the sum of all its components. And so moving on, like we've done a design approval, then there's the development stage. You should have a QA done. I recommend that you have someone different than the person who built the test to QA because as the more time you spend into something, then you get familiar with it and you may miss stuff. Having someone who's got a fresh pair of eyes is going to help have a very in-depth and proper and rigorous QA. Then, and so, but by, by obviously by rigorous QA, we're talking about multiple devices, multiple browsers, basically, however you can think a customer is going to come across this test, you should test that. Yes. I mean, th- and the weirdest little things can go wrong. I've, I actually did an audit on a website recently and I found that and I'm still not entirely sure if this was consistently wrong, but it seemed to be whenever I was on the homepage and had an empty cart, when I hovered over the cart, there was a bug Mm -hmm. on the cart overlay. So you could see that it was trying to open up and display that there was nothing there, but the pop-up kind of got stuck. Whereas if you did it on any other page, you got a full pop-up which said, no items in the bag, continue shopping Mm -hmm. or something. And it's just these little things where you do a certain sequence of events and that pop-up will show. Yeah. And you feel like you're doing the same experience, but you've done it through a slightly different way. That's when the experience breaks. And, and the importance here is that we QA, every issue that we find can compound if we don't fix them. And so an improper QA could lead to an experiment that's exposed to a large part of your audience who sees something that isn't working. Or maybe they're prevented from taking somewhere they care for. And one, if you don't notice it, it can muddy your results and you can make decisions, important decisions based on data that's unclean and guiding you towards somewhere that's off. And this small component is actually a pretty huge checklist that a different person should spend a lot of time on. So definitely agree here. And the external pair of eyes is really something I, I advise strongly. Yep, absolutely. So now we're at a point where the test is fully developed. We've validated that it's uh, working properly with our QA. We need a final approval stage just so that one stakeholder clients, whoever you're working with, one, they're aware that this test is go- ready to go live. But second, we never push something unless we have a stakeholder approval because then you ensure that there's no issues. And one common case that I've seen is we build an experiment, let's say around your chat feature. And if you do not inform your CS team, then it's very likely that suddenly they are swarmed and they just reach out to marketing and whoever product who are responsible for the program. And they tell you, whoa, you didn't advise us. And now we're being swarmed. We have a hard time serving customers and it's poor experience and we, we hate it. That creates internal friction. But once again, that part of the process is there to alleviate all of this and make sure that we have a full and total internal alignment on this test going on. Well, it's, uh, it works with a phone number, isn't it? If you test, let's put the phone number in the main navigation so that people see it and it's more visible so we build trust. Right. If that then does actually result in a large increase in phone calls and you've got one customer service agent, 
it's, it's not going to go down particularly well. So, yeah, it's important to let other teams know. But also, it's important for you to know what's going on in the business as well. Yes. So when we do our regular client updates, there's always a section where we say, is there anything you need to let us know? Are there any changes coming up, yes. new team members, new product launches, anything like that? Because it's surprising how many times we'll have one of those calls and they'll say, yeah, we're, we're just about to launch a new collection. And you're like, that's a pretty major part of your website that you haven't told us about. Yeah. So yeah, really important that feedback is both ways. Agreed here. And onto what you just said, part of our process is we hope that we identify these things early on in their process for our, our client teams. And one thing that I'll always say to them is if you're willing, before you fully deploy this new page or collection or feature, let's try to test it and just verify that everything works fine. And it should, mostly it should. But if ever it doesn't, then the test is going to be the best tool for us to identify it quickly and also prevent losses because when your test is exposed only to 50% of the audience compared to 100%, if you wouldn't test. But then also, usually within a period of like five to eight days, we're able to flag a test that's underperforming. So that's a really quick turnaround. We have to press pause and with a single click, we return to the experience that performs best. So that's a real important value of experimentation. And maybe in this case, the test plan actually is coming from the client team or from a specific internal a group, but it's still definitely worth testing at the very least to make sure that we mitigate and prevent any major losses. Just on that last piece though, I think it's important to let a test run for an appropriate amount of time before making decisions. Obviously, if you know after a couple of days, and you've had several thousand visits and you're in the hundreds of conversions already, if your conversion rate is down 20% on the test variant, you might want to put it on pause and say, is there something wrong here? Is the experience really that bad? But otherwise, if your, your test might be down four, five, six percent in those in that first few days, maybe a week, I've seen plenty of tests flip the other way once we get to that three or four week mark and we've got enough data through it. So so, and the same goes the other way, right? If it looks like a successful test, you can't just cut it short and say, sweet, we've got a winner here. So you're, let's, let's deploy it. You're so right. Part of our methodology is also respecting our testing methodology, which is you have a, a, an estimated test duration that you've run prior to launching the test. So what's the, the, the total time this will run? So there, the only time you won't let that reach it is if the performance is so bad that you're hurting revenue very badly. Um, yeah. Yeah. Actually losing a lot of money for the client and you're, you're looking at this thinking, this might not flip, this probably won't flip the other way mm -hmm. and we are currently losing money. So yeah. yeah. And so onto our final step with testing, you've launched the test, collected data during the test is live, at least for the first day we, we monitor it. So that means this is the real experience and we... Every now and then, we're going to go with a different browser, a different device, and we're just going to make sure that the test still looks good. So it's kind of like a post-launch QA, basically. Then you've completed the tests. You're at the stage where you're looking at your results. And here, there's three key steps that are going to help you generate the most value from your testing. One, going into the numbers, so just look generally for each metrics you track. We typically use three different levels of metrics. Primary, which is the one metric we're trying to, to, to optimize for. Then we have secondary, which can be multiple metrics that are likely to move along with our test. So for example, if you're targeting an at the cart, it's very likely that transactions are going to move side by side with it. But maybe at the cart is really what you're optimizing for. Other metrics that could move in similar directions could be, for example, an email capture on the page that's been moved. And then there's monitoring which is just a bunch of stuff that you want to keep track, but it's not essential to the test. So I could mean here pulse rate, revisit rate. I could be clicks on buttons. It's a bunch of smarter actions, but you want to track them to have a holistic view of your data. So first, just look at the general results. Second is go on and run segmentation. And I'll say this, I really advise that you have a data scientist or someone who's very comfortable using platforms like a GA4 or whatever you're using for data. Your testing platform can help with some segmentation as well, but you need to look at the different device types. You need to look at your visitor loyalty, you versus returning visitors, 
you also can look at different campaigns or channels and just try to slice and dice the data always possible and pull out all the segments that are either statistically significant or I also like to pull segments that posted good traction, could have been close to hitting statsing, but didn't. So that helps you have this holistic view and sometimes you'll find that some segments perform different ways. So that also helps you think really about type. Go back to the design of your test and try to answer why, let's say, mobile and desktop are performing different. Sometimes it's just a placement of the device. Of, but it can be different channels. It can be that a test worked really well for, for yes. Facebook traffic, but doesn't for Google for some reason. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You need to go obviously go and explore that, go back to the research a little bit. Right. Hypothesis. And one thing I'll say is if you consistently find this insight, then sometimes it can bring you to a discussion of maybe we shouldn't build test plans entirely on mobile or entirely for our Facebook traffic and build other test plans for the rest of our audience because they behave differently. Second step is taking time to document in a written form on a viewer variant and take time looking at user behavior, expectations. You can also write something about what were the assumptions going into the test and what are the, the things that you've validated or invalidated. And typically, the way that it should look like is an average test should generate, I would say, between three to six learnings if you want to have something rich to pull out of it. Because then our third step is to build follow-up variations. So as you said before, one test, many variations. And so here we try to do that. Based on what we tested here and the exact feedback that customers gave us with how they behaved, then we build up new variations that helps you transform one test into 10. And then if you look at it down the line, you could see how it trickles down and builds a massive backlog with you, right? So that also ensures that your program gains speed and velocity rather than slows down to a drive because we're not sure what's next to test. Yeah. And I think that's, I mean... (laughs) It kind of loops back to the start of the process, right? That bit at the end happens if you do the stage one right. Mm-hmm. If you have research and use that research to come up with that problem statement and the hypothesis, you're going to run the test, you're going to get the results, you're going to get those learnings. You can tie those learnings back and say, right, well, this is what we need to test next. Mm-hmm. If you skip that first part and just say, this is what I want to test, let's do it. It becomes a lot more difficult to come out with those actual learnings at the end of it because you don't know why those learnings exist because you have no hypothesis to link it back to. Exactly. That's very well said. Yeah. Just about to finish up, there's just one more question I want to ask you about your processes before we uh, just wrap up. How much are you guys incorporating AI into your like analysis and the learnings piece? Is this something you're using a lot of at the moment or is it, yeah, are you playing around with it? That's an interesting question. I will say that... I have never really jumped on the AI bandwagon. For sure, I went into the tools and run a bunch of different prompts and questions. One observation that I made was that you can use, let's say, ChatGPT to analyze a data set. Let's say you've, you have chat transcripts or stuff like that. What I've found is typically it's still not as good as just me sitting down and digesting the insights. And so sometimes it can be a good yeah. complement but I also feel like I get into a comfortable space using these tools and I miss out on stuff. So in reality, I don't use AI much to be an input to my work. Rather, I drop my inputs into the AI to drop different uh, variations. And so the core example that I have, and it's mostly the only thing I do with AI is I'll have a research insight that brings me to a hypothesis I want to test. And if it's content related, then I'll craft the first draft that I really like and drop it at us for 50 more variations. Most of the time, I'm not going to use one of those exact variations that it provides me, but I'm able to pick and choose from different components. And sometimes it's just one keyword that's good here or a part of a phrase here that I really love. I'm going to match that to build my final product. I'll have to say that yeah. AI is definitely not a tool that I rely on. If I didn't have any AI, I would still be able to do all the work. And I personally feel that AI gets me in, in a place where I'm too comfortable and I miss out on stuff because I'm relying too much on that. I think one, one thing that I found works quite well is, so for example, re- analyzing reviews, we'll plug a load of reviews in and ask it to call out some of the key mm-hmm. pain points, key desired outcomes, whatever. When it does that, we'll also go ask it for some examples of reviews that have led to that 
that that output that it's given us just so we can check it because th- there's always reviews that the way it's written can be read as a negative if you can't kind of understand the context behind what they're saying yeah. so i always like to do that double check on it same as you it's we use it to speed up our process a little bit but we have those checks in just to make sure it's actually giving us the yeah. information that's great because yeah you just you don't want it telling you that oh the, the key pain point for a lot of these people is i don't know whatever skin skincare products are too mm-hmm. watery when actually the feedback has been people can't go swimming with it on yeah and or something and it's just misinterpreted the use of water watery or something i do want to bounce back on a question to you really quickly will because you asked about ai and a recent trend that i've seen is that a lot of tools right now are about predictive ai which can replace maps and scroll maps and all these other research methods that are more uh, conventional and standard i'd love to hear your take on that because we've seen that trend emerge very intensely recently and i personally feel very cautious in front of that but i know to hear your thoughts i have seen some actually we've not used it i guess it'd be the same answer right it would be i would if i was going to use it there'll be a long period of time where i would have to run it side by side with actual heat maps mm-hmm. to make sure that what it's telling me is actually what customers are doing on the website i yeah i would struggle to to really believe it i think It's the same with what's the extension for Clarity. Microsoft has AI within Clarity as well. Okay. So it will give you insights from session recordings and heat maps. Again, I need to analyze them myself Mm -hmm. to feel comfortable with it. I use AI a lot more in other areas of the business. So we would do a lot with the podcast and and some other content stuff because we can tidy it up a lot more quickly. It can produce far better subject lines than I can. So that's what I use it for. But when it comes to actual client work and, and CRO, it's, yeah, it's used carefully. Mm-hmm. Cool. Just two very quick questions before we before we finish up. Have you got a have you got a marketing tool that you recommend or a CRO tool that you'd recommend? So, or a or, or if you don't want to name specific brands, have you got a category of tool that you think is essential for the process? Especially if we're targeting this for the the general audience here, which I assume are either at day zero and are looking to experiment or are getting started. I will say the one tool that I feel has the most value for the cost is any UX research. We think there's like three common tools that are uh, Crazy Egg, Lucky Orange, or Hotjar. Whichever you pick, there's slight differences, but mostly it's pretty much the same tool. It's great because you can do so much different research methods with it that is going to allow you to gain a lot of rich value and understanding of different perspectives for customers. There's EatMass that allow you to know where people click and where they don't. There's Chrome Maps that allow you to know how much people engage with your page. Then there's session recordings, which in tandem with these other two research methods can help you understand specific issues you're spotted or just look at in individual people and see how they use your site, which is very valuable and helps you see how they don't use your site the way you think they do. And then there's intercept polls, which you can do for exit intent or other types of questions, which gathers for you qualitative insights and voice of customer data, which is great. And you can use this voice of customer data right into your tests. So I definitely think that's the one tool I recommend. But Will, I will say to everyone who is listening to us, there's one tool that's even better than that. It's your brain. And we're always trying to find these different tools but the reality is nothing is going to beat your brain looking at, an, at a situation and trying to contextualize everything and have this holistic view. So use your brain with whatever tools you have, and that's how you're going to maximize your returns. Yeah, awesome. Cool. And if you've got one final parting CRO tip for the audience. Right. So we talked for a, for a process for a whole hour here, Will, and a common mistake that I see from people is... When they get it started with experimentation, they have a myopic fo- focus on getting a first test win. And I totally know and understand when, where you're coming from, where you need to hit ROI, getting a test win is a magical moment, and you want to build this internal traction that CRO works. But I really recommend against that because it's a flawed mental model. And if you think in the long term, which right now might be hard to picture, but Setting up your process to generate consistent wins is going to have way more value than having one test win. 
So instead of thinking, I need to win with this test, this second test needs to win, just start thinking about what are the pieces I can put in place so that all my tests are very likely to win. And that's all we discussed today. Building up your research, identifying the goals, making sure that you map your tests so that you're using these research insights, targeting the business goals, and the, the process as a whole has more value than each of its individual parts. So when all of these smaller parts are put into place, then the value is much greater than you can think of right now. And it's going to allow you to end the crown running. And the last thing I'll say is, if you start with the wrong focus, it's going to be really tough to unlearn, to relearn properly, if ever you get there. So that's why focusing on building the process is going to get you that early win at some point and also allow you to find more wins on the line and make this program a sustainable growth initiative for your company for us for the foreseeable future. Yeah. Awesome. Perfect. Well, thank you so much. If anyone wants to reach out and find out more, what's the best way of doing that? Yeah, you can find me on LinkedIn. I post there every weekday about 9.30 a.m. East. If you are as passionate as I am or you have a question, feel free to connect on LinkedIn and send me a direct message. And Will, thank you so much for having me. That was a great discussion. No problem. Thanks so much, Simon. Uh, what a great session with Simon. We just uncovered the significance of having robust processes in place for CRO and explored the multifaceted stages of a CRO program. It's clear that structured processes are the bedrock for any successful optimization endeavor. You'll perform better research, uh, which generates stronger hypotheses, leading to better experiment ideas and ultimately better performance for your business. Eager to delve deeper into Simon's insights? Connect with him on LinkedIn for more wisdom on CRO processes. As always, if you have thoughts, questions, or suggestions for future guests, do reach out at will at customerzooklet.com or hit me up on LinkedIn. Next up, we've got AJ Davis joining me. We're going to be talking about research and why it's essential to a CRO program. Stay tuned for more insights in the next episode. And until then, keep those customers clicking.